morning, everybody. Um, as, as we get started today, I, I just want to begin by kind of uh, making an announcement, talking about something that's been on our calendar here at the church for a long time, and that is the, the marriage conference that we're going to be hosting here at Jefferson Avenue uh, coming up in February. I believe it's February 13th, 12th and 13th. I want to talk a little bit about how we're doing that and why we're doing it the way we are. So uh, this marriage conference, we're bringing in Ray and, and Janie Ortland. Now, there's probably many of you who are here today who have no idea who Ray and Janie Ortland are. So I just want to share with you for a second who they are. Uh, Ray Ortland is a contributor to uh, the, the website and organization called the Gospel Coalition. Uh, he is a conference speaker who has done uh, conferences all, all over the United States. He's an author um, who's written several books, a couple that I have read um, myself. His wife, Janie, is an encourager to pastor's wives, um, as she has been a pastor's wife for you know, decades. Um, and she has uh, written a book, and also she hosts a podcast as well, uh, Encouraging Women. Um, so th these people are, are people who have encouraged me and been a blessing to my life. I listen to uh, one of Ray Ortland's podcasts for young pastors routinely, uh, and just find it to be very encouraging. And so, uh, as a church, Jefferson Avenue Baptist, your, your leadership uh, values marriage. And we truly want to make an investment in each one of your marriages. Because we know that as a, as a home, as a home, if we, mom and dad, husband and wife, are following the Lord, serving him well, then we can encourage each other, help each other, raise our children up in the faith, and be that example to them of what it is to walk in the ways of Jesus. So we believe it is very important, very important for couples to be encouraged in godly, godly relationships. And if you're not married, but think someday I might be, then this conference is still for you, as it's an opportunity to learn what to expect and how to prepare your heart for whatever relationship God might have for you in the future. Now, we made some decisions as we put this together. Um, and how we were going to handle child care. Because if you're doing a conference for couples, most of them are probably going to have children. So what are we going to do? Well, uh, as we thought about it, um, we decided we're going to be uh, sharing this event with several churches. So uh, with at least three other churches here in Springfield are going to come and participate alongside us. And so as we talked about this together as pastors and also as I approached several mothers here in the church, this is, this is what we came up with. We organized the weekend to where if you wanted to send your kids to grandparents, aunts or uncles, or trusted friend, you could make this into a little staycation uh, event that you could do at home where maybe if you've got that loved one, trusted loved one, you could send your kids away and save a ton of money by not having to pay for a hotel and all these things. Um, as your kids are someplace else. However, that may not be an option for everyone. Uh, we understand that. So the way we've set the, the weekend up is it's broken into three sessions that are each going to be an hour and a half to two hours long. Uh, the first one will be Friday evening. The second one will be mid-morning on Saturday. And the third one will be afternoon on Saturday. The reason we set it up that way is we know for some of you, you're not going to be able to send your kids to somebody else's house. You'll need to have a babysitter at home. So there should be plenty of time this won't be late nights, it won't be early mornings, where you could have your babysitter come to your house, watch your kids, and then come and join the, the conference here at church, and then have time to go home between the first session on Saturday and the second session on Saturday, feed lunch, take to a different child care situation if you have to, or if you've got kids that are 
maybe old enough to stay home alone but not quiet, you can go home and check on them, make sure they didn't burn the house down, uh, that kind of thing. Now, the reason for that is you guys know what church is like on Sunday uh, after service is over. What do we do? we got to go run all over creation and find our kids. We got them, then they're like pulling on us and yanking on us, and, and uh, uh, we're trying to make sure they don't die, you know, running around, all these things, make sure they don't go home with a stranger, right? So uh, what, we, what we want to do is say, hey, that night here at church, we want you to be able to focus on your marriage. We want you to be able to focus on your spouse. Um, and so when you're done, we want you to be able to walk out in that foyer and not have to go find your kid. We don't want you to have to have that urgency of running around like a chicken with your head cut off, with your head on a swivel, trying to make sure your kid's not doing something else. Okay, so that's the heart behind why we're doing the evening this way, why we're doing the conference this way. Uh, when, when you're trying to balance several churches working together, child care becomes even more challenging. And we think this is the best way for uh, husbands and wives to connect to each other, feast on God's word together, and grow together um, as we try to, to tackle this um, important issue of strengthening homes and marriages. So if you guys were wondering why we're doing things like this, I just wanted to lay that case out for you uh, so that you knew where our heart was uh, as we approached um, uh, this, this marriage retreat. But I was thinking about this. Uh, a lot of you guys don't know, like I said at the beginning, who the Ortlands are. And so you have to rely on their reputation, right? Like what somebody else says, who something somebody else says about them, maybe what you read about them in an article or something like that. But we rely a lot on reputation. Now, this is my segue to the sermon. Okay, so reputation becomes uh, an important thing, right? It's easy to live up to a bad reputation, and it can be challenging to live up to a good reputation. Uh, you know, we don't want to, what, what do they say, uh, over-promise and under-deliver, Right? But if it's about a bad reputation, I mean, that's pretty easy to do. If you want to live up to a bad reputation, all you got to do is be selfish, right? Make decisions that benefit you at the cost of others. Kind of just be a jerk, right? And boom, you've accomplished it. Bad reputation. But a good reputation uh, is a lot harder to live up to. Uh, it takes a lot of effort, selflessness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. You can just hear the fruit of the Spirit come out as we talk about maintaining a good relationship, a good reputation. But our culture does something weird. Okay, we love to, uh, to trash reputations, right? Like, we, we get excited when we see people fall from their high places. Like, ha-ha, that famous person, I knew they were too good to be true, Right? But we've got this weird thing that we do in our, in our lives. I think our culture does this all the time. We want to be front runners on famous people. So when we see somebody start to emerge as a star, like early in their career, we say, ooh, I like what they're doing. They're pretty cool. And so, like, nobody's heard of them, and that's pretty awesome. Like, yeah, you know, I follow so-and-so's career. Who? Yeah, that's what I thought. They're kind of obscure, you know, and we, we think that's really cool. Well, but then if they're really successful, what happens? They go from being obscure to starting to be famous. And as they ascend, there, there seems to be this thing where we want to just bring people down a peg, you know? Like, we don't want them to lose touch of their roots. Who do they think they are, you know, getting all famous and fancy? Don't they realize they're just one of the common folk like us? We want them to remember that they're normal people and not just famous people. Now, it would seem that this, this cycle here of wanting to see people rise only to watch them fall... Uh, is not uh, just an issue that our culture faces. It seems to be something that even Jesus faced. 
Now, we don't like to think about this, but in a way, Jesus was a rising star. Now, he wasn't going to be famous uh, on the terms of those who followed him, but Jesus was going to experience a level of fame as he followed the Father. You see, Jesus had a mission, and uh, carrying out that mission would mean people would know who he was, but he was not going to be famous by seeking his own glory. His fame would be a byproduct of his mission, his message, and his humble uh, attention to bringing glory to the Father. His fame would come because he was a selfless servant. And Jesus began to have quite the reputation. So I want to read for us just two verses uh, that begin uh, our passage here that I forgot to have Susan read. These come from verses 14 and 15 of chapter 4. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So what's this say? It says that a report went out about Jesus. And, and what was that report? Well, it seems to be a pretty positive report because it says that he was being glorified by all. This would, uh, if you're receiving glory from people, it would seem to be that they had rather positive things to say about him. Now, this, uh, this reputation grew all throughout the region of Galilee. Now, if we looked at uh, Israel in the first century, the, the, the landscape was kind of divided into three sections. To the south, you had Judea, which is where Jerusalem was. In the middle, you had uh, Samaria. And then up north, around the Sea of Galilee, you had uh, the region of Galilee. Now, this is where the city of Nazareth was, and Nazareth was the hometown of Jesus. This is also where the city of Capernaum was, and Capernaum was kind of Jesus' home base in his Galilean ministry. So as he's going about from city to city to town to town, he's, he's, doing, uh, he, he's uh, presenting in the synagogues, there begins to be this reputation about him that goes all throughout the land. And as it goes all throughout the land, it would have had to have come back to Jesus' hometown in Nazareth. So before Jesus came back home, they probably would have heard about Jesus growing in his uh, reputation. Now, could you imagine just being, a, a, a town, a, being from a town in the middle of nowhere, just a, a, a tiny little place, and somebody famous from being from there? Have any of you guys ever driven to Dallas uh, from Springfield? All right, as you're driving through uh, Oklahoma, uh, you come across the city, and I'm going to probably butcher this name, but of, uh, uh, man, I practiced it like 10 times, uh, uh, Chickata. Am I saying it right? Chickata? Chicota. Chicota. I was going to look for you, Bill, to ask you how to say it. And I didn't, and I should have. All right, so you come to the town of Dakota, Oklahoma, and you know what used to be. I don't know if it's still there, but when we were living in Dallas, it was there. You know what, you know what was on a billboard outside of town? Home of Carrie Underwood. Like, all right, if, if you're in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, you take pride in whatever you can, and if some famous person is, is from your town, you're going to put a billboard out there, you know, hey, this is where she's from. And then you, but if you blink, you'll miss the town. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty little. So this is there. They had, that town clearly has a lot of pride for their famous alum, Carrie Underwood. Now, here we have Jesus, all right? 
and, and he, he was from Nazareth, this little town. Now, we know from Luke chapter 2 that Jesus was uh, in, in the temple teaching the, the leaders, uh, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, right? Do you think he only did that in Jerusalem? Now, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'd have to believe that when Jesus was home in Nazareth, when people saw him running around as a teenager, as a young man in his early 20s, they had to think, this guy's going to be a good rabbi someday. I mean, the way he teaches, the way he talks, his example, Jesus had to have had a pretty good reputation. They had to have seen that this kid is something special. He's a, he's a little rabbi in the making. And so he goes out and he's preaching across the Galilean countryside, and word gets back to them that Jesus has made it. People are following him. This rabbi that they thought would become something someday had started to get a gathering, and he comes home. He comes home, and he reads the scriptures in their synagogue. Now, to me, this is the same as Carrie Underwood going back to Dakota, Oklahoma, and singing the national anthem for the local football game, right? Like, the town's going to be like, she's coming back, right? They're going to be excited. They're going to want to see. There's some buzz about it. And Jesus comes back to his town, and he's going to teach in the synagogue. And this is where we pick up him reading from the scroll in uh, Isaiah chapter 61, if you're reading out of the Old Testament. But we're going to see this in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. It says this. Jesus reads from the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this, is not this Joseph's son? Now, before we dig into the, the, the quote here from Isaiah, I want you to, to look again at verses 20 through 22. And, and what do we see is going on here? The people in the synagogue were transfixed on Jesus. Their eyes were on him. They were marveling at his gracious words. And the sense we get from the phrase, is not this Joseph's son, is not some kind of glib, condescending statement begging the question, who do you think you are? No, the, the way that Luke records the event, at this point, the people are saying, hey, I know that guy. Like, that's the attitude that they seem to have as they're talking here. The clear meaning that we're supposed to see through verses 20 through 22 is that the people of Nazareth have pride in the fact that Jesus is one of them. But that's the problem, right? That's the problem. Jesus read this passage and he told them that it had been fulfilled in their hearing. And when he said this, 
he was trying to communicate the exact opposite of what they heard. Jesus is making a claim about his divinity, and what they heard was not that at all. They thought Jesus was one of them. Jesus was telling his friends and neighbors he was indeed not one of them. Jesus wanted them to know that he was not just a fulfillment of one of many who could come in and perhaps uh, fulfill this in some general sense or maybe point to a future uh, event as a means of being an encouragement. Jesus was telling them that he was there to fulfill this passage in its ultimate sense, all right, now this is important, not as the son of Joseph, but to fulfill this as the son of God. You hear me? What they say? Is this not Joseph's son? Wow, he's one of us. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not. And they missed it. They didn't see. Okay, so let's go back and see what's going on in this quote from Isaiah chapter 61. All right, this is, this is a, a, a prophecy of a threefold proclamation, a threefold preaching. The first thing that uh, Isaiah 61 says is that the, the gospel is going to be preached to the poor. The good news is being proclaimed to the poor. Second, we see there is another proclamation. This proclamation is of liberty to the captives, it's sight to the blind, and liberty to the oppressed. And then we see the third uh, proclamation that's going to be made. The final one there says the proclamation of the year of our Lord. Now, we could just, you know, spend two weeks breaking down, three weeks breaking down each one of these and what they mean. But that's not what we're going to do today, okay? We're going to kind of combine them and see the big picture of what's going on. So I'm, I'm going to try to simplify this threefold message into one sentence, and that's this. Jesus is proclaiming to those who need to hear it the good news of the year of the Lord's favor, which is good news of liberty and freedom. Jesus is coming to preach freedom. He's coming to preach that to anyone who will hear it. Now, if you're in the crowd and you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, you know, uh, th this is good news. We, the Messiah is going to come. All right, that's great. And the Messiah will free us whenever he comes. Now, now these were poor people. Okay, these were poor people. And Messiah, when he comes, he's going to bring in a season of prosperity. And these were an occupied people by Rome. And so when Messiah comes, he's going to come in and he's going to bring freedom from Rome. Now, as we move through the, the rest of the book of, of Luke, we need to kind of have Isaiah 61 in the back of our minds, okay? Because what does this passage really mean? Why did Jesus really uh, uh, read this passage? Well, because it was going to be a representation of what his ministry would be according to his plan and not their assumptions about what Messiah would be like. So as we look at what the, the greater book of Luke does, who did Jesus preach to the most? Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, in, in our minds, we, we are this middle-class uh, American culture here. We, we tend to forget something of what it might have been like to live in the first century. There, there was no middle class. There was the rich, and then there was everybody else, and everybody else was poor. Okay, so when Jesus... Uh, comes to, to talk to the common people. The common people of his day were poor. 
There was no middle class. So we'll see throughout the book of Luke that Jesus is constantly preaching to poor people. But we will see that Jesus wasn't uh, bringing in a kingdom that would overthrow Rome. He wasn't coming to establish a power that would defeat an earthly kingdom. Instead, Jesus was bringing in a kingdom that would overcome sin and death. Jesus' kingdom would overcome sin and death. Now, if you look back up in chapter 4, where did we just come from last week? Just last week, we saw that Jesus had won a great victory. He had won a great battle. He spent 40 days in temptation in the wilderness. And Jesus left the enemy defeated. He had just seen, we had just seen a big victory for Jesus as he defeats temptation for 40 days in the wilderness. So he's bringing in a kingdom that would follow what we've already seen John the Baptist preach in chapter 3, right? And let's think back. What was the message that John the Baptist preached? It was that people needed to repent for forgiveness of their sins. So what do we see is the war that Jesus is going to be waging. Is this war going to be freedom from Rome, or is it going to be freedom from sin and from death, right? Now, this is interesting. In the middle of John's exchange with the people that we saw in John chapter 3, John told the people, do not trust in your bloodline as Jews to save you. John says, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. John says that uh, there will be children of promise from all over the place. It doesn't just have to be from the Jews. So what John is saying is, hey, quit looking for a gospel that is just for the Jews. It's going to expand. It's going to be bigger than that. This would not just bring, the Messiah would not just bring freedom and liberty to the Jews who were oppressed by Rome. The good news would bring people into the kingdom from all over through the forgiveness of their sins. So so Jesus was bringing in a kingdom that was bigger than the Jewish community. Now, we know that this message is indeed hope for those who are physically poor and for those who are physically oppressed, that someday uh, all things will be made new and all things will be made right. But the gospel is also hope for the spiritually poor and the spiritually oppressed. When Jesus read this passage and said that it had been fulfilled, his listeners were probably thinking that Jesus was making an announcement that Rome was going to fall. At a minimum, at a minimum, even if they didn't think that, all right, it was a reminder that God cares for them in their poverty and in their oppression. Now, that kind of message is good and appropriate, and it is encouraging, and it's one that we need to hear, and probably one we need to hear often, that God cares for us in our times of need. But for Jesus, that wasn't enough. He didn't want these people walking away thinking he was just giving them a message for future encouragement. He did not want to just pour honey in their ear and tell them what they wanted to hear, that Rome was going to fall. Okay, Jesus meant more. He meant that he was the Messiah. 
and that he was the one who would set free the oppressed and give sight to the blind. Jesus couldn't let his friends and his neighbors and honestly probably some of his extended family, he could not let these people miss what was going on. This was so much bigger than Rome and so much bigger than an encouraging message to a downhearted people, okay? So, church, what I, what I need you to hear me on is this. Jesus is the one that picks this fight. Jesus is the one that draws the line in the sand. As this confrontation heats up, we need to understand that at the end of verse 22, Jesus has the meeting out of the palm of his hand. They think he's awesome. But Jesus says, accept me for who I truly am or reject me for who I truly am. Jesus will not let them believe a lie. Now, in this passage that we've read, it says that Jesus came to, uh, to give sight to the blind. So implied throughout this whole exchange is that the town of Nazareth is blind. They can't see the truth. When they look at Jesus, they see the son of Joseph. And in fact, they are impressed that he's one of their own, that he's this wise and he's this bold. But they are blind to the fact that Jesus is the son of God and not actually Joseph's son. So when Jesus says he's come to proclaim sight to the blind, part of that means he wants the people of his hometown to see who he really is. And church, that's something that they just aren't ready for. So how does Jesus pick this fight? How does he let them know that he's saying something different than what they assumed? Let's take a look at how Jesus escalates the situation rather than letting the city believe a lie. Let's jump into verse 23 through 27. It says this, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up, three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now what do we see here? A prophet's not welcome in his hometown. And what examples does he go to? Elijah and Elisha, two of the great prophets of the Old Testament, right? And he references these, these, these prophets and the two people that they helped. So the first one is the prophet Elijah and the widow at Zarephath. Now this comes from 1 Kings chapter 17. So if you want to read this story later, it comes from 1 Kings chapter 17. Now this, the short version of what's going on in 1 Kings 17 is that King Ahab had become king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, he was an extremely wicked king. 
So God sent Elijah to go and proclaim that there would be a drought over the whole land and that it wouldn't end until God used Elijah to announce the end. Now, this, this drought hit hard, and all the people of Israel suffered. All of them suffered. They were all in a bad way. But a prophet's not welcome in his hometown. So where does Elijah go? First, the Lord is sustaining him by the ravens bringing him food, and then he sends him to the region of Sidon where he rests with a widow. And this is the story where the widow is about to die. She and her son are about to die of starvation. He says, hey, can you bring me a drink and also bring me a, a, a morsel of bread? And she says, listen, man, my, we're, we're about to die. I've got enough flour and oil to make one more cake of bread. We're going to eat it, and then we're going to starve to death. And Elijah says to her, if you will make that cake and bring it to me, your flour and oil won't run out. And so, because what does she have to lose? She goes and she does that for Elijah. And Elijah stays in her home. And no matter how many scoops of flour she got out of that jar, there was more flour in there. No matter how many cups of oil she poured out of that jug, there was still more oil in there. All the people of Israel are suffering, and yet God preserves a Gentile from the land of Sidon. Similarly, similarly, we have Elisha, who was uh, under, he was the apprentice of Elijah. And Elisha, uh, his story comes from 2 King chapter 5, uh, runs into a situation where this general Naaman from Syria, another Gentile, is afflicted with leprosy. And all the people there in Israel, there's lots of people who have leprosy, but Jesus points out that Naaman, the Gentile, is healed. Now, in both cases, God sent his blessings to the Gentiles and not the Jews. When Jesus makes this point, he is disabusing the people of his hometown of their selfish interpretation of his words. Remember, John the Baptist had said that God could raise up children of Abraham from the stones. Jesus' message wasn't about their political freedom or even about their physical poverty. His message was about freeing the captives from all kinds of sins, from all kinds of people. Jesus says, you guys are going to want proof that I have the authority to proclaim these things. He says, you guys are going to say, if you, Jesus, think you have the power and authority to make all these things happen, if you think you're going to save anyone, then you'd better prove that you are who you say you are. Does this sound familiar? Remember what we talked about last week as we looked at the temptations of Jesus? As we looked at the temptation to turn or stone into bread, as we looked at the temptation to throw himself off of the temple, in both those situations, what does the enemy say to Jesus? If you are the Son of God, prove it. And what do we see that Jesus is calling out in the people of Nazareth? You doubt me. And you're going to say to me, prove it. Jesus knows these people won't believe him. He knows they're going to reject him if they knew what he really meant. This crowd is thinking at this point, we know who you really are, Jesus, and you are full of it. Jesus knew that if, if he told them who he really was, 
and not who they thought he was, then they would reject him. So what Jesus does in this confrontation is he pushes them to see the fullness of the claim he was making by reading from the scroll in Isaiah chapter 61. When Jesus clarifies his intent, when he let his neighbors know what he was really preaching, they did exactly what Jesus predicted they would do. They rejected him. So how does the passage continue? It says this in verse 28. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove them out of town and brought them to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. And passing through their midst, he went away. So what's the reaction to Jesus' proclamation? They were filled with wrath, and they wanted to kill him. They wanted him dead. We're talking a total rejection of what Jesus was coming to say. But by God's grace, Jesus makes his point, and he walks straight through the people and on his way. Now, what I want us to see today is this. When we believe the wrong thing about Jesus, it's easy for us to have fuzzy feelings about him. When we believe the wrong thing about Jesus, it's easy for us to have fuzzy feelings about him. Especially when those fuzzy feelings are based on what we want to hear and not about the truth that Jesus is proclaiming or the truth that's in the Bible. When we misinterpret what Jesus says to tickle our own ears, then Jesus is kind of fine by us. But what Jesus does is he calls us to deal with the truth of his identity. He will not let us live in the lie of who he claims to be. Do you see that in this passage? They had a misunderstanding And Jesus could have walked out of that town with a celebration. There could have been a parade from Nazareth to the next town if he was willing to let them believe the lie. But Jesus wasn't willing to do that. So he forced the issue. He says, I'm not going to let you misunderstand. I'm going to tell you the truth about who I am. And I'm going to do it in a way that makes you realize your bias. And he makes them really mad. Now, in our day and age, in our culture, one of the number one taboo sins in our culture today is to offend someone or to make someone feel uncomfortable. If you have offended them, if you have made them uncomfortable, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Now, I'm not saying we go around trying to be a jerk, okay? But what I am saying is this. When it comes to who Jesus Christ is, we don't sugarcoat it. The truth is the truth. And when these people try to uh, believe a false gospel of who Jesus was, Jesus says, that is not what I'm saying. That is not who I am. And Jesus clearly is the one who picks the fight. 
I want you guys to listen to a few passages. Let's look at James chapter 4, verse 4. James 4, verse 4 says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When we sugarcoat who Jesus is so that we aren't as offendable, we're, we're making a huge mistake, okay? Now, I, I just want you to think about that. What would the temptation be to sugarcoat Jesus? If Jesus is sugarcoated and somehow less offensive, somehow less exclusive, okay, then if we paint Jesus as this more uh, all-encompassing, universal deity, then he's not offended. He's not offensive. And if we're associating with that kind of Jesus, what's it say about us? We're not as offensive either. But Jesus says, hey, if you're trying to, to be friends with the world by some fake Jesus, then you're actually an enemy of God. So Jesus says this in Revelation chapter 3. This is one of the uh, uh, churches that Jesus speaks against uh, in the seven letters to the seven churches at Laodicea. Jesus says this, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus says, I've drawn a line in the sand. So should you. Don't try to play the middle. You can't. If you try to play the middle, you're actually against me. Jesus says this in Matthew 12, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you're not for him, you are against him. There's no middle ground. And Jesus says that to his hometown. Let me read you one more. This is coming later in the book of Luke from Luke chapter 12. Verses 51 through 53. Jesus says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two, and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man, that's heavy. Because we just want to smooth it all out. Make it easy. Make it palatable. Get along. Go along. All right? But I bring up these verses so that we can see that it's not our job to smooth out the rough spots between Jesus and our culture. It's not our job to smooth out the rough spots between Jesus and our culture. It would have been so easy for Jesus to have let the, the, the city of Nazareth's false interpretations about his message just hang there. Jesus could have left town with everybody smiling and waving, but instead Jesus loved them enough to make sure they did not accept a lie. Jesus would rather be rejected because of the truth than accepted in a lie. Jesus would rather be rejected because of the truth than accepted because of a lie. Now, what I want you guys to see here 
is it's very important to remember that Jesus doesn't need us to defend him. Jesus doesn't need us to defend him. How did the passage end? How did the passage end? He walked out. They were going to kill him. They were going to throw him off a cliff, probably to stone him. Okay? They were all going to join around and smash him with rocks. And what does Jesus do? He walks out. He doesn't need you to defend him. He's got it. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, that no one takes his life. No one takes his life. But he lays it down willingly. Only to what? Raise it back up again. Guys, it's not our job to smooth out the rough spots. It's not our job to say, well, Jesus... I think a lot of times when we do that, we're doing that for our advantage, not for his. Because we don't want to be rejected the way Jesus was rejected. We don't want to be put on the fringes the way Jesus ended up on the fringes. We want to smooth it all out so that it can be shiny and it can be good and we can live at peace under a lie instead of under a truth, the truth. But look back at Isaiah 61. Why did Jesus come? He came to set us free from our bonds. And he does this by proclaiming the truth. And that is what we are to be as his people, proclaimers of the truth, not ones who muddle with the facts to make it more palatable, but to be proclaimers of the truth. This is the freedom that he won, forgiveness of sin. And we have forgiveness of sin by believing the truth of who Jesus Christ is. So why would we muddle the truth if it is the truth of who Jesus Christ is that sets us free from sin and death? When we perpetuate a lie, we only further enslave people to their sins. But we have been set free. And so we are free indeed. Jesus says... Let's read that passage again from 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's us. We are spiritually poor and needy. He has come to proclaim liberty for the captives. That's us, bound in slavery to our sin, recovering sight to the blind, Without the work of the Spirit, we cannot see the truth and to set liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that we may walk forward in the kingdom of God. That is the gospel, and that 
is very good news. And that is not the truth if we hide from who Jesus really is. As the praise team comes, let's pray. Lord, I, uh, I thank you and praise you that you drew a hard line in the sand, that you let us know we shouldn't compromise. Lord, I thank you that you clung to the truth even when the temptation had to be there to, uh, to, to let these people believe a lie. Lord, I pray that we would walk in your grace and in your mercy, and Lord, that we would walk in the truth of who you are. Help us to know that as the Son of God, you are the one who lived the perfect sinless life, who died the death we deserved, who was raised from the dead, that by faith in you we might be raised from the dead to eternal life as well. We thank you for all you do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we sing these last two songs, if there's something you need to, to lay down before the Lord, the altar's open. This is a time of prayer. If you need to confess to him ways that you have uh, modified the gospel or tried to defend him when he doesn't need your help by maybe presenting Jesus in a softer way, then, then use this time to, to confess before him. If there's something going on in your life that you just need to lay down before him that has nothing to do with anything I said, then now's the time to do that as well. Or if you're here and you want to know more about the truth of the gospel, then I'd love to talk with you more about who Jesus is and what it means to place your faith in him. Adam, let's sing.